It's up on the screens for you, but we're in First Peter. Like I said, go get your little books. It's a free. Yay. Um, okay, so we're starting in verse 6 of First Peter, chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, <laughs> so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> awesome. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Caleb, for sharing that. That was very meaningful. Thank you. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm excited to share with you uh, in First Peter uh, and really build on what Steve has already done in the first two weeks to intro the book. Uh, and really, we can't say enough that we are excited to kick this book off. We really are. We think it's going to strengthen our faith, especially in a year like 2024 with the things that are ahead of us and this whole staying rooted as beloved exiles and that being our identity in a living Hope. <clears throat> well, I'm going to jump in because I have a lot to get through this morning. Uh, and first, to kick off, I want to preface this whole talk with trials uh, with talking about a guy named Job just a little bit. And if you don't know who Job is, he's kind of in the middle of your Bible, so you can read about him more. But he's a great man of faith. He loved God deeply. And he went through a season of his life where Satan brought him many different trials and sufferings. And through that, he got to the end of his rope, near death. He had lost all the things in his life that really mattered. His own family had even turned against him, telling him it's better just to die. And he had his friends come to him in this moment of need. And what, how his friends approached him was to question why this was all happening and to ask what he had done in order to cause the suffering that he was experiencing in his life. Honestly, that was a terrible way to be a friend. That's not what you need in the middle of a trial. And later, God rebukes his friends in that. And so saying that, I don't want this morning's sermon to be a sermon like Job's friends. Because some of you are experiencing trials right now, and it's really hard. And so the last thing I want to do is to come in here with the five steps that you need to do in order to successfully walk through your trial. I don't want to talk about the check boxes you need to check off to make sure you're doing or the, the questions you need to ask to make sure you're getting all the things out of the trial that you're supposed to get. This isn't the sermon where I'm going to tell you just to have faith and trust God, because that's hard to hear sometimes. This isn't going to be the sermon where I talk about how God caused your trials, because I don't believe that. I believe that Satan has caused things, our broken world has caused things, and God can change our trials and repurpose them and redeem them. 
So this morning may not be encouraging to some of you if you're in the middle of a trial. It could be, but I'm not going to guarantee that you're going to walk out of here with this great smile on your face about all the things you're facing or that it's just going to be an uplifting time. I hope it is, and I pray it is. But depending on where you're at in your journey with whatever you're facing in life, I just hope that at least these can be things that you can hold on to for the time when you're ready to hear them. So today, we're going to go to three different places. Exiles and Living Hope is our first one, just kind of recapping some things. Then I'm going to give you four perspectives over trials I believe we find in the text. Uh, And then we're going to end on a genuineness of faith and what that means for us. And then after that, we'll close with an encouraging story over someone who has been through a trial year last year. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to you And we just give this time to you. Wherever we're at this morning, whatever we're carrying in this space today, we give you this time. Whether trials are in the middle of us or behind us or ahead of us, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen us, and that our minds would just be open to hear whatever it is you have for us. If you don't mind, just take a second and just pray and ask God to speak to you this morning yourself. Lord, we love you and we trust you at this time. You hear me pray. Amen. All right. To start the morning, like I just said, we're going to talk about uh, being exiles and our living hope. And this is recapping a lot of what Steve has already talked about, so listen to his sermons as well. And the reason I want to do this right now is because in order to really understand 6 through 12, you have to really understand verses 1 through 5, which is why verse 6 starts off with this. In this you rejoice, meaning in what we talked about in verses 1 through 5, you're rejoicing, which is leading into how we can rejoice in trials and go through the rest of the passage. So here's a brief recap of that. Steve introduced the the idea of exiles to us. And what an exile is, is someone who is forcibly removed from the place that they live and taken into a different place, a different country, a different culture, and forced to live somewhere else. Now, the strict definition of exile is not something that First Peter is holding to here. He wasn't, the people at the churches he's writing to weren't forcibly removed. And today, we aren't being forcibly removed from certain places to live. So what does it mean to be exiles here? And to talk through that, kind of start at the beginning. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is kind of the, the path that you're on and the story that you've been had. You were born into this world, and since the day you were born, you've been formed by this world into a person. Whether you realize it or not, the world is forming you into someone. By the culture we're in, by the things we celebrate, by the things we love, by the things the people around us hate even, or who they hate, we're being formed constantly every day by the culture that we live in. For most of us in this room, that identity that we have, that we're born into, is one that's rooted in a national identity of being an American. 
And most of us in this room are even worse than that because we're Americans, but we're also Texans first, right? Howdy. Can I say howdy from everybody? And then on top of that, I'm worse as, long, as well as some of you in the room because we're Americans, we're Texans, and we're Aggies. So that's like the trifecta of cult pride right there. So I can admit it because I went there. You can't say it's a cult, though. Don't say that. But what happened to us when Jesus Christ came into our life, all of those identities were stripped completely away and were given a new identity in who Jesus is and who and what the gospel is. In a sense, we were given a new citizenship. We're citizens of a new kingdom, and that is the kingdom of God. So now we're supposed to celebrate the things that God celebrates, love the things that he loves, hate the things that he hates. We're supposed to walk in this new identity in Christ that should permeate, permeate all of us. And it's a living hope, one that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But with that, right, we, we don't actually live in a world still that is under that operating principle of the kingdom of God. We live in a world that is under the old operating principle that is the principalities and power of this world still rule and reign in this time that we're in. So this makes us, the, bodies of, the body of believers, a people whose identities and citizenship are in the kingdom of God, but we're currently living in a world that is not of the kingdom of God. And so, by definition, that makes us exiles. We're people who are living in a different way right now and is not our home because our home is not yet here. Our home is what is someday going to come when the kingdom of God comes when Jesus returns. And that is our home. So we are exiles in that land. In that lens, we are people living in a foreign land that is different. And we should operate differently than the current one. And if we're not, that's revealing to us, right? That's a sermon for another day and another time. So what we mean when we say exiles, we have identity as followers of Jesus. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit and worshipers of the one true God, Yahweh, that is different than the one we live in. And because of that, there's going to be a rub, a natural rub that happens as the culture pulls our identity one way and Jesus and the church pulls our identity another way. And with that, there's going to be a certain rub that happens that can cause certain trials to come in our life and certain difficulties to come in our life. That's what First Peter's talking about here when he's addressing these churches. At this moment in time, it's not an all-out statewide persecution against the church. It's more of they're, they're moving them to the fringes of their culture and taking them out of the normal rhythms of their life, as Steve talked about the first week. And that's what we experience most of the time, too. There's maybe not a statewide persecution. Hopefully that will not happen here. But we are experiencing a moving out to the fringes of our society and our culture, and that is normal and should be even expect, expected. Like we live in Texas, I get it, like Bible Belt, okay? Uh, the last few years I lived in Midland, that's like the buckle of the Bible Belt, all right? So Houston is a little different, but our culture is growing more and more antagonistic to God wherever, wherever we live, no matter where we're at in this world. It is going that direction. I took a course one time on a living a missional life, and the course was designed by people 
who live in more bigger, bigger secular cities designed for people living in those cities. And so after the course was over, I asked the question when they had the Q&A. I said, would you change anything about the course for people that live in the South where we're not so secular? And the guy leading the course gave an emphatic no. Because in all of his research, and all of his study, he said the South is just behind on the curve on the secular movement. And it's just coming that way more and more. So he wouldn't change anything. Because if anything, it'd be laying the groundwork more for us when it does come. Like it has in New York or Portland or wherever else in the U.S. So with this idea of exiles... We have to change our way of thinking, and we have to start living as though this isn't our home. We are part of a different kingdom than this world that we live in, and with that will come trials, and with that will come suffering, and with that will come being pushed out to the fringes of our society. And this is where we get into verse 6 with trials. We are exiles, but we are beloved exiles with the living hope. And how do we go through these trials that will come? And also, before we move on, I want to say this, that this does apply to sufferings and trials that aren't related to cultural pressure. And so I'm not just trying to say this is a persecution-related thing. This is also whenever we face any kind of trial in life. That is not because the culture is pushing us a certain way. So if you've lost a loved one, or you have broken relationships in your life, financial troubles, a hard season of parenting, a hard season of being in your marriage, a hard season of whatever it is, battling anxiety, sickness, disease, or just life. This message and the things that we're talking about still apply to that, even though it's not a cultural persecution, so to speak. So with that, we can move from our identity in Christ into trials. And I think there's four perspectives I want to talk about this morning that I believe this text to give us and all of Scripture give us that can help us stay rooted in that and just kind of give us a big picture outlook on what we need to hold on to as we go into trials. Again, if you're in the middle of something right now, if you're like knee deep in a hard season of life, what I'm about to say just might go in one ear and out the other, and that's fine. Again, hold on to these things for a season when maybe it's time for God to really speak these truths into you more, if that's you. So... Here we go. We're going to move kind of quick so we can get to the, what I believe is the main crux of the message next. The first one is perspective one. You are not alone in your trials. The early church faced these trials. That's why Peter's talking about this. And we face these trials today. And more and more as a church, we need to normalize this whole conversation about what it's like to go through something hard and to have suffering and to have trials and have hard seasons of life, to have what some authors have called the dark night of the soul where you just feel like you don't experience God or hear from Him for whatever reason. And we need to normalize that whole discussion around that. We were talking this week uh, as elders, just there's a whole idea that Americans have, more than the world, but mainly Americans, that our whole life is this kind of up and to the right graph line. Each thing is just up and to the right, the next job, the next uh, salary increase, the next bigger home or whatever it is, up and to the right. And if we don't achieve this up and to the right mindset, then we've somehow failed or missed it. And that's just not true. And we all know that to be true, but we live like it anyway. And we live with this fear of failing and falling into that. 
And we've put that same mindset onto our spiritual journey as well, where we think everything we have to do is up and to the right. If I'm not going up and to the right with my walk with Jesus, then I'm somehow failing. And that's just not true. And again, we all know that. Because most of our journeys are not up and to the right, straight line. It's like up, down, side to side, backwards, circles, squiggly lines. Like it's all over the map. We all know that, but how do we actually believe that to be true? So let's normalize the discussion around the hard things in life we face. Because you're not a bad Christian if you go through a hard season. You're not less than. You're not less accepted by God. You're not less loved by God you go through a hard season of life. That's just not true. Perspective two. Suffering is in fact a small portion of our life in context of eternity. This can be a hard one to hear because when you're in the middle of it, every day feels like an eternity, right? Every day feels like it just drags on when you're in the middle of something. But this is a true biblical perspective to have. Peter says, here, they are, talking about trials, they are but a little while. Paul follows the same sentiment in 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 17, he says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How does a guy like Paul and all the suffering that he went through, all the things that he faced. It's like well chronicled in Scripture and elsewhere, all the things that he went through time and time again. And he calls all of that light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. It might not seem like it, but the trials we face really fail in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that we'll experience someday in heaven. That's a hard thing to really believe in the moment. But when our identities are rooted in Christ, in a living hope, that can be true in our own life. And we can believe it. Perspective three. Jesus himself suffered and faced trials. So, uh, verse 11 mentions the sufferings of Christ, and the cross is the most obvious example of the suffering of Christ. And I don't want to diminish that. That is the key to our whole faith, his cross and his resurrection. But I want to talk more specifically this morning about some of the things that Christ experienced that maybe we can relate to that's not being beaten and crucified on a cross, right? So Jesus did, in fact, face other hard things in life. Sometime between the age of being a teenager to 30, his dad died leaving him the oldest in the house to take care of his brothers and his sisters and his mom. Think that was easy for him? It was hard. I can't imagine what that was actually like for him. And to know that he's God and he experiences the full weight of that sadness even more than we can ever imagine of death. And he had to face that and walk through that time. How about this? His own family eventually made fun of him and rejected him in his Messiah claims. In the scripture, it talks about one time where his brothers were trying to go to Jesus because they didn't think he was in his right mind in order to shut him up because he's embarrassing the family. His own family rejected him. He had no family support. 
His dad was gone. His own hometown rejected him as Messiah. If you remember, he went, and only a few miracles could be performed there because his own hometown did not have faith that who he was or who he said he was was real. I think we can gloss over that point, but that's like the people you grew up with, the people whose homes you went to. I'm sure he was fed by some of those people at some point. I'm sure he was watched as a kid at some point by some of those people, and they all rejected him. His disciples, his closest friends, abandoned him in the biggest moment of his need. His three closest friends, James, John, and Peter, couldn't even stay awake and pray with him when he asked them to. He was betrayed by Judas. His friend Lazarus died. He had no home to go to every night, no bed to sleep on. By all implications, he led a life of poverty, at least by our standards. So Jesus' life wasn't easy. He faced suffering and trials over and over again. And we could go on, but this is why Hebrews says, in the book of Hebrews, that we have a high priest who cannot, or who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way yet without sin. We have a king who has been tempted in every way and has faced trials and sufferings. We don't have a God who uh, tells us to come to him from a distance. We have a God who comes in the midst of us and, is be, and to be with us. This is why throughout the world, the message of the gospel is continually accepted by the, some of the most broken and poor people on the earth. Because they don't have to change their life for him to come to him. He comes to them and changes them from the inside out first. That's good news. Perspective four. Jesus will come back and renew all things. Someday Jesus will return. And someday Jesus will come back. And he will take away with him every single suffering thing in this earth. Every trial, every sickness, every pain, everything will be taken away. And he will make all things new. So no matter what we're going through now, we can have a hope. Hey, someday my king's coming back and he's going to take this away. Someday he's going to come back and he's going to change all of this. We have a hope that is a living hope that Jesus will change it all. If we stay rooted in our identity, that we have a living hope as beloved exiles, and we hold these perspectives. You're not alone. Suffering is small in comparison to eternity. Jesus suffered as well as us. And he's going to come back one day. If we can hold that to be true, that I believe we can move forward into these trials that we face with that identity and that firm foundation of and getting out of trials what the scripture is talking about here. And that is a genuineness of faith that is more precious than gold. Verse 7 says this, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This whole idea of testing by fire comes through proving the genuineness of metals, in particular gold. And so what they would do is when you, when you mine gold, it's not always pure. It has other things attached to it, other minerals, other metals. Or you would have people that would add to it in order to falsify how much 
weight of pure gold they had. And so they would alloy it or mix it with something else. And so this idea of refining gold and putting it in the fire so that everything else will melt away. And the only thing you have left is the purity of the gold. And most of the other metals of the day would melt at much lower temperatures than gold. There's actually studies done on the the main thing is they would mix gold in to falsify it. It melted at almost 800 degrees less than gold. So everything would melt. And you'd just be left with this purity of gold. And this is the same thing that we can go through as trials. We face something hard and it can act as a fire that burns off the excess, that burns off all the things that we face that don't draw us nearer to God. Trials can burn off everything else and just leave a purity and a genuineness of our faith. This is true in my own life. I shared maybe three years ago when we came back from overseas, I shared a testimony at Hope And in that testimony, I talked about how while being overseas, I experienced one of the most loneliness times of my life, where all I wanted was just a good friend to hang out with, someone to just laugh with, just to be there with and sit with, and how I didn't have that. And it was hard, and I honestly hated it. And I don't wish for you to go through anything like that, but I did, but through it, I pressed into the Lord more than I ever had in my life. I would sit with him, and I would say that season of my life is the time I really learned to pray. Like, really pray. It was the time I learned to commune with him, to sit with him in his presence, to just be in the quiet and know that he's next to me. It's funny that Caleb talked about the friendship with God, because the verse I'm sharing is after that season, John 15, 15 came alive to me in a whole new way. It says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. During that season of loneliness, everything was stripped away, and my relationship with God went from servant to friend. And it was hard, and I hated it but I wouldn't change any of it. Because through it all, I found something more precious than gold. If we can lean into the hard times that we go through, as painful as they may be, there's a refining that can happen in our hearts that strips away everything else that doesn't matter. Everything that keeps us far from God And that's the point of the refinement, is that relationship piece. It's not to become a certain kind of Christian. It's not to say, I've been through a thing or two, and so I'm tougher now. It's nothing like that. It's not like we attain a certain standard of Christianity based on our sufferings. The only point of this, what is more genuine in our faith and more precious than gold, is our relationship with him. To to know God and to be known by God is the point. That is what we find. If we will press in and let the refinement process take hold of us to know God and to be known by Him and the purity of what that means. I say all that, but I also need to say that trials don't guarantee this to happen. It's not like you go through a trial, therefore I'm going to be close with God now, right? No, that's not true. 
there's actually a way that trials come into our life and we grow more cynical. We grow more hard. We grow more cold. We grow more self-seeking in all the things that we do. So trials are not a life hack in order to get to the depths of God. It's not something we should seek out, but there are things that we can, that God can use in our life to make us grow closer to him. We see this happen in individuals and communities as people go through trials and communities as a whole go through trials. It can make them into cold, hard, cynical people that only focus on themselves. This is true even in my own life, in my past. When I first got into ministry, it was a hard season and I experienced some things that were really challenging to me. And what it did is it stripped away all my naive thinking towards what church was and what nonprofits were and really saw some people get hurt. I saw myself and my own family get hurt. And what it did to me is it turned me into a cynical person who, after looking back, I added to the bad culture instead of being a healer of the culture. Because I let the trials in my life turn me into a cynical person instead of a loving person. And sadly, we see this in communities over and over again. In churches across the country, we see splits happen. All the number of denominations we have and different this or different that. Leadership moves on and people are left, become less loving and more inward focused. And it leads to the eventual death of a church instead of the vibrancy and beauty of it in the community. Hope, I say this as a warning for us. We have been through a lot. If you've been here for a long time, you've been through a lot. And there's no way to diminish that or take away from that, but there is a sense that we're kind of coming to the end of that, hopefully. Hopefully we can all sense, like, we're in the building now, maybe we can catch our breath for the first time now. There's hope for something new now. There's all these things that are kind of lining up. But I say this as a warning to you that don't run out of the trial too quickly. Don't leave the refinement process too fast to where we can just come out of this other side and think, we're great now. We can just coast. We can rest easy. Let the whole refinement of God work on us as a church too, for you individually and us as a community so that everything can fully be burned off that we need to leave behind. Yes, that means sin for us individually and as a community. What's sin in our life, but also just what habits do we have with our time, with our finances, with our schedules, with how we interact with people? What are things that we just need to let go of? What about idols in our hearts? What about idols that we have that we're holding on to? I would say this, the main thing that keeps us from being refined by a trial is probably idols that we hold on to in our heart. If we're unwilling to let the fire burn off the idols of our heart and we hold on to that, all it does is it cools the fire and it leaves us unchanged with stuff still attached as we go through our life. So what idols are in your heart, church, individually and as a community? What things have you let become ultimate in your heart that shouldn't be there? What have you prioritized over what God has for you? Is our friend groups, maybe? Have we let our groups of friends actually change from being deep community and let them become something that is much more cliquish 
And we don't invite people in and we leave people lonely and by the wayside because we don't want to risk losing this thing we have. What about this one? This is a hard one to hear, a hard one for me to hear. Is what about our families? Have we let our families become an idol? Have we let our identity as being a spouse or being a mom or being a dad an idol? The Bible puts a high priority on being a good dad and mom and spouse. And I'm trying to diminish that. I'm not saying go the other direction and neglect your family. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying has the priorities shifted to where our main thing in life is worried that we're going to be a good mom or dad. And we're living out of fear instead of living out of hope and faith of what he can do. Because Jesus says, for when you lose your life, you'll find it. But if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it, even in the good things. The best way to be a good mom and dad, the best way to be a good spouse, is by giving your life completely to him. And through that, it will transform every single relationship that we have. What about as a community? What idol do we hold on to, Hope? Do we have an idea of how Hope Church should operate? We have an idea of how it has operated before. Are we trying to live in something that is not actually our present reality? What new thing is he trying to do that can't happen because we're holding on to something that he's trying to change? Are we holding on to idols as a church that we need to let go and let be refined and burned out of us? So to all those things... And our lives that need to go, I say to you this morning, don't let the fire cool. Fan the fire into flame and pray the prayer asking God that the fire would just increase to burn off everything, to burn off every lie, to burn off every idol, to burn off every self-preservation tactic we have in our life. May everything be burned off and what is only left is a pure genuineness of faith that desires relationship with him over everything else. And that is how all those other things are changed. It's not out of fear. It's out of love. But that love only comes when we let go. And the fire increases more. Don't dampen the flame. Let it burn. And we have let the fire refine us and bring a genuineness of our faith. We walk in the way verse 8 and 9 talks about. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is what the prophets devoted themselves to. They were prophesying and waiting and hoping for this time that we're in now. This is the time that we're in now that angels long to look into, whatever all that means. But one thing I think it does mean is that angels, there's a way that I think they are looking on at humanity. They are seeing what's going on. They have seen the things that have happened of old, of how we rejected God, how we turned away from God, how he's come and, and saved us and rescued us and risen from the grave. And we're living in this time now where we don't see him. We even suffer for him. We still believe in him. And I think that's something the prophets of old and the angels now look on to. And they glorify God for his mercy and his grace he's shown us 
that we're able to do that and live in an already not yet life. Look, some of you in this room, you've been through a lot. This past year, 2020, this past five years, this month, this morning, or maybe just life in general, has just been a beat down. One thing after another after another. And some of you are just here today, and all you can do is just show up. And if that's all you have this morning, is just to show up and be here, I say, well done. Life is hard. Trials are hard. And we as a church just want to say to you, thank you for coming. Thank you for just showing up and not giving up. We're here for you. Keep going. And I think God says that to you too. He looks at you and he knows all you've been through and he says, I am proud of you. You showed up today. I don't care if you have all the words to say. I don't care if you have to have the right words to pray or memorize X, Y, and Z scripture. You showed up today. And I think God's proud of that. I want to close this morning by telling a brief story about a lady named Trudy Sayers. She's the wife of an author and a pastor in Australia named Mark Sayers in Melbourne, Australia. And last year, she gives this testimony of how their, their family had gone through a really challenging season. And as they were coming through that season of suffering and trials, they were finally going to get to the other side. And that was until she went to the doctor and she got diagnosed with cancer. And so from a moment of relief to a moment of dread and fear of death. So she had to come to the terms of her own death. She had to call her husband and tell him, because he was in a different country at the time, hey, I just got diagnosed with cancer. She had to go home to her kids, sit them down and tell them that mom might not make it. She was deeply involved in their church. She was deeply involved in an organization called 24-7 Prayer in Australia, and she had to lay all that down. Because she felt called to that. She felt passionate about that. She wanted to see prayer become the most vital thing the church did. And she had to walk away from that because she couldn't go through it and be in chemo at the same time. And we could talk about all the stories around her testimony of suffering that she faced and how she faced it boldly. She let all the things burn off that didn't matter and she pressed into God more and more. We could talk about how really, even though she stepped back, the Lord used that time of suffering to transform her church even more than they had seen in years because of what she'd gone through. And they saw people press more into prayer than they ever had done in their church. We could talk about all that, but one thing I want to point out about her story is this. And she, by the way, is cancer-free right now, so praise God for that. Um, as she was getting to the end of her treatments and was looking more positive, she had to go through this time in her own mind of thinking through, hey, I am never going to be the same person again. Every doctor's visit I go to could be a, hey, it's back. My, her life was never going to be the same again 
because death was always going to be a shadow over her life. No matter what she did or where she went, she was not the same person anymore. And she was grieving that. She's mourning that loss because she liked the way things were. And she felt like she got this word from the Lord as she was reading through Exodus. She was praying and processing through this and she felt like the Lord spoke specifically to her. I'm going to just quote her and it's going to be on the screen. But she felt like the Lord said this to her. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't grieve what was. Trust me that I'm taking you somewhere better. In the midst of a cancer diagnosis, in the midst of a changed life forever, she was able to believe that this was the better way. She was able to not grieve what she had lost, but to press in to what God had done in her life. So I say this with all compassion to you this morning. As someone who has been through hard things in life, maybe that word that God spoke to her is the word you need to hear this morning. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't grieve what was. Trust me that I'm taking you somewhere better. I'm going to ask the rest of the band to go and come up. This morning we're singing a new song that they're about to play for us. It's called Hope on the Horizon. And it was written uh, by a guy who their whole church community was going through a hard season, a trial. And they were facing a lot. And this song came out of that. So wherever you're at this morning, as we sing this song and they play Maybe you just need to sit and listen a little bit to the lyrics. Maybe feel the freedom to sing, the freedom to, to read it off the screen as they come. But I pray that you would be encouraged and it would bless you this morning. Let's pray. Close. Lord, we come to you just so thankful for you. Thankful for your word thankful that you are the God who gives us a living hope that never goes away, that is unchanged, that is undefiled, that is imperishable. And we do pray this morning that, as you said in Hebrews, that you are a God who is a consuming fire. And I pray right now that you would consume everything in us that's not of you, God. You consume every idol and everything we're holding on to, that we need to let go, that you would burn it off, and that what would be left is a purity and a genuine faith that's more precious than anything. That's you. I pray that you're close this morning to the people in this room that are suffering and going through a hard, hard season. I pray that you would encourage them, you would show them your presence this morning, that you would give them hope, you'd give them the next step, whatever it is. You give them a friend to sit with them. You give them awareness of your presence in their life, even if they can't feel it. So we love you. We trust you. Amen.